Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Hello, Herstory heroes, and welcome to another quarantined episode of Whining About Herstory, a podcast where two longtime gal pals share stories about women from history that you may not have heard of over a drink of some sort. This morning, I'm drinking flavored water. This morning, I was supposed to be drinking OJ, but my boyfriend drank it all, so fuck me, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Also, I'm kidding. I love him. I'm Emily. (laughs) So we are still in quarantine, which is a bummer because I am missing Kelly's face so bad. Right. I mean, digital is nice, but it's like, it's better when you can actually like physically be in the other person's presence. Dude. So you know how people do uh, like engagement photos and videos of proposals and things like that? We should do a special video of like us being reunited, like slow-mo running towards each other. It's raining. It's straight out of the notebook. Like reunited and it feels so good is playing over the background. As long as you're not wearing a zipper on your jacket that day. Oh, my God. One time we did the notebook jump where they like run into each other's arms and I jumped into Kelly's arms, but the zipper of my sweatshirt hit her right in the teeth. Yeah, it was not pleasant. Yes. It was fun, but not pleasant. That's okay, because sometimes love hurts. I'm just going to try to get a You're just full of music today. Oh, it's because it's. It's because it's 10 in the goddamn morning. <laughs> and you past have all the Emily, energy. Yes. Well, past Emily was going to be really responsible and go to bed at a decent hour. But then past Emily looked at her phone and realized, oh, it's almost midnight. <laughs> Sounds accurate. So I'm like, it's weird because my eyes are heavy, but I'm feeling a little manic. Like, I don't give a shit about anything because I'm tired. Yeah, that sounds accurate. That's kind of how like all of quarantine life is. You're just like constantly tired because you're bored. What day is it? Someday. Uh, So Kelly, do you have a say their name this week? I do. Give me one. One second. I shouldn't have sounded so surprised. That was really rude. (laughs) I'm ill prepared. So my say their name this week is Kate from the Explore Us podcast. She sent us some lovely stickers and an alo- a lovely Olympias um, card all the way from Australia. And um, honestly, her podcast is absolutely fantastic. And if you haven't checked it out, you should definitely go check it out. She's going through women's history one era at a time to like to show what it was like to be women in those in those eras. And it's it's a fantastic listen. And she is wonderful. So she is my say their name today. Kate, she is the fucking best. Like, The Explorers is one of those women's history podcasts. Like, what we're doing is fun and entertaining, but hers is, like, next level. It's really well produced. Like, she has music in hers, which apparently is, like, my threshold for good production. But <laughs> she's she's got such great information. It's so detailed, but then it's presented in a really fun and engaging manner like she's got a little bit of a like sass to her like a little humor and right, I love it's, her it's so much fun and actually there are some women that we've covered that I've I've heard of on her podcast because she doesn't just go through the era she'll also profile women from those eras and I yep. think right now she's covering women who survived the Titanic is that correct uh yeah I believe so yeah that was I need to catch bonus. up <laughs> 
she did a bonus episode on women on the Titanic. Which is like made for sound- me. <laughs> I haven't listened to it yet, but I keep meaning to because it, it sounds so interesting. Because uh, otherwise she's on the Edwardian era right now. But then she like stepped out of that to do the bonus Titanic episode, which is great. That's amazing. Yeah. No, she's got an amazing podcast. She's so well informed, so entertaining. And if you guys haven't listened to The Explorers, get on it. Like after you listen to this, of course. Right. Us first, her second. Just kidding. We love you, Kate. I mean, you guys, we have priorities here. You know what? Self-care is care. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. All right, my lovely lady. I believe it is your turn to go first. All right, uh, but Kelly, I just do want to remind you we are recording, so you need to put your vibrator away. This is not the time shit, nor the place. I was just thinking place. about that. I was like, oh shit, my phone's vibrating. Yeah, so it's, it's vibrating super loud. My laptop, so theoretically, you won't be able to hear it on my recording, but I still I silenced it now. Okay, because I'm like, what what is happening? Because I can only see like your bust up. I can't see what's going on under that table. <laughs> no, it's. Well, it's because you're I, you're on my phone, and my so my phone's propped up against my laptop, so you can actually see me. Nice. All right. Well, I'm going first today, and uh, I'm covering Ranghild Kata. And you guys, she is from Norway. There is a Ooh. lot of Norwegian in this story. I have so many pronunciation notes, and I'm doing my best. Like, I love the Scandinavian countries, but yeah, I remember I covered someone from, what was it, like, either Sweden or Norway, and I was just like, I don't know how to pronounce this thing. <laughs> so I love your countries, but your language is really hard. It, for for us, like, I'm, I'm not quite uh, educated enough to understand how these letters are supposed to be pronounced. I just know how right. they're pronounced. Uh, if our listeners me. in Sullentuna, Sweden, want to help us out ever, we'd love that. You know what? They're probably going, that's not even close to what we speak, you ignorant cows. <laughs> right? They're like, that's not how you pronounce our town name. <laughs> yes. Just a sad tuna. Anyway. Um, so before I begin, I also really uh, want to mention I had a really hard time finding information on Ranghild because every article I found was literally the same article, like word for word. Yep, I've found that before in a few of the women I've covered. And I'm like, okay, so I have one article. And it was so frustrating because it was one of those things where I'm like, there's more to this story than I'm getting. But uh, our whole deal is covering women you probably haven't heard of and you super have not heard of her unless you're from Norway. I think she's a bigger deal in Norway, but probably. So anyway, if 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 you like go on Wikipedia or literally any other article about this woman, you're like, wow, this sounds suspiciously like Emily's notes. That's because they are. <laughs> There's nothing. All right. Ranghild Kata was born in the parish of Vester Schlidra in what used to be Oplan, Norway. We're getting through this. You're rocking it. Just keep going. Fun little bonus fact, because I had to like have more than a paragraph of notes here. As of January 1st, Oplan merged with a neighboring county to become Inlane, which I thought was kind of cool. Like like that just happened. That's yeah, that is kind of neat. Yeah. 
So at only three and a half years old, Ranghild came down with scarlet fever. Super fun time. And some believe this is what caused her to suddenly lose her sight, hearing, sense of smell, and sense of taste. So all she has is touch. I was going to say, that's like four out of the five senses that we always hear about. Like, that sucks. (laughs) Yes. She must have had like a super sensitive touch response, though, because they say if you lose one sense... Your other senses kind of get heightened. Like, so she, I wonder if she had like a super sensitive touch response. So, you know, are, are you familiar with The Last Airbender? Yes. Like, okay, you know, the good one talk? or the shitty movie? No, 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 no. The, like the TV series. Yeah, yeah, of course. The other thing is the thing we shall not speak of. <laughs> right, exactly. But Toph in that series, so she's blind. Like, she can still mm-hmm. hear and everything. But she uses earth bending and she can like touch the ground and like get a map in her head of what the terrain looks like or where people are and stuff. So that's what I'm kind of imagining. That might be rude. I don't know. But Toph is amazing. And so I don't think that's like a bad comparison. No, I don't think so. But so this is rough. She's three and a half years old and has lost her sight, hearing, sense of smell and taste. Like that's terrible. Three-year-olds are already a nightmare. Like, her poor parents. I can't imagine going through that as a parent. Well, then, I don't know if this is going to be covered in your notes. Did that affect her speech? Um, I'm going to kind of get into it. Uh, okay. So, she she has the ability to make sounds, but she doesn't yeah. know how to, uh, like, form words necessarily. See, and that's what I was wondering is because I was like, she's at that age where they they're kind of speaking but they're not, yeah, like fully. So, okay. She kind of just got stuck in that phase. Okay. Yeah. So I couldn't find much on Ranghild's childhood, but I can't imagine it was easy. There weren't any schools with special that were specialized in helping students with disabilities, or at least there weren't a lot, you know. And I doubt there were many resources for her parents to use. There was no like parenting 101, what to do when your child loses four out of their five senses. Also, guys, I know there's more than five senses. I, It's just easier to say We're that. We're talking about the main five. <laughs> yeah. So like anyone with disabilities, I imagine Ronghild adapted and learned how to navigate the world in her own way. Because that's what people do. We're very adaptable. Especially so young. Right, right. Well, and I mean, three and a half, like I imagine the preschoolers I used to work with, and they're really starting to like figure it out, you know, and be more right. independent and more communicative. But well, it's like you as a child, you can, depending on how old you are, you can have half of your brain removed and the other half of your brain will learn to make up for it if you're young enough. Is that true? Yeah. Like you'll still have like some slight deficiencies or you might be a little bit slower, but as a whole, you'll still operate fairly normally. Dude, kids are so resilient. Yeah, it's like crazy. it blows my mind. So totally off topic. This was kind of like a, a hometown uh, situation. I don't want to call it an event, but uh, you guys may have heard of at the Mall of America uh, up in the Twin Cities, a five-year-old boy was thrown over the balcony, like down a like it was like down three floors. So he was thrown over a balcony. And fell three floors and hit the solid floor under, you know, beneath. And, I mean, they caught the guy. He's being dealt with however they want to do that. Um, 
And everyone was just waiting, like, to hear the news that he didn't survive. He's going to be fine. He, I mean, he was in the hospital for a long time, but they really don't suspect he's going to have any long-term damage or uh, disabilities or hardships, other than maybe some trauma of being thrown over a balcony. Right. Like, if, if he even remembers it, you know? But yeah, kids are insanely resilient and the, like they're kind of magic in their own way. <laughs> it yeah, it truly they truly are. Okay. Anyway, back to Ranghild and let's stop talking about poor children getting thrown over balconies. So when she was about 13 or 14 years old, everything changed. Halvard Berg, a teacher and author, met Ranghild in 1887. He was struck by Ranghild's situation and wrote a passionate essay for it in Verdun's Gang, uh, which was like a tabloid magazine. And maybe it wasn't so much tabloid the way we think of it, where it's like, I had Sasquatch's baby. But it was some kind of like publication. So enter Lars Hofsted. Lars was deaf and a pioneer in deaf education in Norway. Apparently, deaf education had become kind of a family interest because his brother-in-law, Elias Hofsgaard, was an administrator at the Hamar Institute for the Deaf. So okay. Lars writes to Halvard Hall, uh, Berg, who was the guy who wrote the magazine. I'm throwing a lot of names, so I'm going to try and make this That's easy. fine. <laughs> so Lars, the deaf education guy, writes to Halvard Berg, who wrote the magazine article, and told him to contact the brother-in-law, Elias, who was the school admin at the Institute for the Deaf. So Elias uh, hears about Ronghild and agrees to accept her into the Hamar Institute for the Deaf and arranged for the state to pay for her education. Because I I imagine her growing up in this small, t- small town. There's yep. not a lot of resources. I don't even know if she was going to school. Like, all of this is super speculative because I couldn't find any other information. But I just imagine she can't be getting the help she needs, you know, and the support she needs to really thrive. So this is huge. And so, like, being able to attend a specialized school would be world-changing. But change, as we know, is often difficult, and this was no exception. Ranghild started school on January 15, 1888. The 14-year-old was highly suspicious of strangers, and if someone touched her, she'd lash out violently, biting and scratching them. I mean, how terrifying would that be? I mean, like, same. If, like, a stranger touches me, I'm like, the fuck? Get out of my bubble! (laughs) Right. And that's being able to like see and hear that the person is there. Like imagine if you couldn't. I told I think I told the story on the podcast once I was uh, I was picking up a prescription and all of a sudden there was someone directly behind me, like way too close. And I can't remember. He said something like, oh, you're you causing trouble or, you know, are you taking forever? I don't know. Something snarky. And I just I turned around and I was ready to like rip this person's throat out. It was my dad. <laughs> he was at the same place picking up his prescription. But I was right. I was so pissed. I was like, excuse you, sir. And that's just my dad being a turd because that's what he does. So, yeah, I can't imagine like you can't see, you can't hear, you can't really communicate what you want. And like a rando is touching you and you're like, whoa, no. Right. 
So thankfully, over time, Elias was able to establish trust with Ronghild, and she began to become more comfortable with him and others at the school. So it was a transition, but they got through it. One of the methods the school used to teach students was the speaking method or oralism. This is a system of teaching deaf individuals to communicate through speech and lip reading. Through this, students learned how to mimic mouth shapes and breathing patterns for speech. Uh, the school typically only used this method for more advanced or I kept reading talented students, but I was like, I don't know what the hell that means. What do you mean talented? So many right. were surprised when Elias decided to teach this to Ronghild because they're like, she's so far behind. She's like, can she really figure this out? Now, from what I've read, nowadays there's a stronger emphasis on manualism or using sign language to communicate. So like communicating through hand signs. At this time, teaching deaf students to speak was the standard, though. Insane and horrifying factoid for the episode. There was a time when American Sign Language was straight up banned from being taught because of the oralism versus manualism debate. Wow. So during this time, oralism was the preferred method and manualism wasn't just unpopular, but it was heavily stigmatized as being primitive. Part of this was because of Darwinism. So verbal communication was seen as what separated humans from animals. And so if you can't speak, you're not really human. And if you have to communicate through hand signs, you're not really human. And this oh, mentality was devastating for people who couldn't verbally communicate. And like, here's the other thing. Everyone learns differently. Like there's nothing wrong with hand signs. And I didn't get super into the effectiveness of oralism versus manualism. But I imagine it's just, you know, if someone who is deaf learns to speak, it's easier for all of the able-bodied people around them. Yeah. Versus... Oh, you mean I have to learn how to communicate with someone who can't speak too? I don't want to do that. And then this kind of thought also played into eugenics and just a whole variety of horrors, which is like oh yeah, disgusting. Like, what the fuck? And I didn't get super into that because it was just like a, a rabbit shit show hole in the ground of terror oh, sure. and I didn't want to do it. <laughs> right? You're like, but, mm, I'm good. That's a dark hole I don't want to crawl into. But, like, I didn't know that. I thought, like, no, hand signs. Like, that's what we're so used to. But the idea that that kind of learning was banned? What? Right. Anyway, in Ronghild's case, Elias felt that it was uh, better to teach her through oralism because she was deaf and blind and that he felt this would be the best way for her to communicate. Because she can't see signs anyway. I'm sure there okay. are other ways yeah. to communicate with hand signs if you're blind. Um Again, guys, I, I can see, I can hear, I can speak. I'm super uneducated when it comes to uh, different forms of communication like this. So admitting my ignorance, doing my best. So Ranghil learned how to pronounce letters and then combine letter sounds into syllables. Finally, she began learning multisyllabic, si syllabic, multisyllabic words. So words with more than one syllable. Once she had the technique down, Ranghild began learning the meaning behind the mouth movement she was making. Which I thought was really cool how they, like, build up on that. Right. The first words she learned were watch, foot, 
and table. Watch for that table or you'll hit it with your foot. Like, there you go. It's a whole sentence. Once she began to connect meaning with the words, Ranghild began associating the words with items she could touch. Ranghild also learned to understand what others were saying by placing her hand on their lips and feeling what words they were forming. And this part sounded insane to me at first, but when you think about it, she's already learned in intimate detail what mouth shapes form certain letters and sounds and then what those letters and sounds mean. So, it, like, it makes sense. Yeah. Along with learning to communicate and understand others, Ranghild learned to read and write in Braille. When Ranghild wasn't working on her communication skills, she engaged in hobbies like embroidery, knitting, and weaving, which are things I struggle to do regardless. <laughs> she submitted right. some of her pieces to an exhibition in 1891, which earned her an honorable mention. So she was good. <laughs> right? That's awesome. In 1889, Ranghild met Mary Swift Lamson, who was a deaf educator. Most notably, she taught Laura Bridgman at the Perkins School for the Blind, and Laura was the first deaf and blind American child to gain a significant education. And this was 50 years before Helen Keller, who every American is pretty familiar with. Right. So Mary is awesome. And Mary was impressed that Ronghill could speak in simple sentences and passed her success story on. She's like, hey, guys, have you heard of Ronghill? She is the shit. Right. In June of 1897, Ronghild was confirmed in the Lutheran Church, but this meant she had to leave the school. Don't ask me why. I have no fucking idea. <laughs> Unfortunately, without the school's support and education, Ronghild's communication progress began to stagnate. Elias welcomed Ronghild back to the school where she lived and learned for the next few years until at least 1900. So she just wasn't quite ready oh. to leave yet. This time, when she left the school, she was able to be more independent than anyone had ever expected. Ranghild went to live with her mother as her father had died while she was in school. Ranghild wasn't dependent on her mother, though. She had become an accomplished embroiderer and knitter and financially supported herself through her craft. That's Even nice. after she left, right? And like, that's like every artist's dream to make a living through right? their craft. And she's doing it, which is amazing. Even after she left school in 1900, Elias visited Ronghild regularly until 1904 when he was in a biking accident and could no longer travel. Like, dude, what did you do? Did you ride right? through the that's... tulips too hard? <laughs> <laughs> that might not even be the right country. I'm so sorry. Uh, no, that that's um the Netherlands. Okay. The Dutch so, uh, that have all the tulips and windmills and shit. God damn, that was your the story last week. Yeah. I just saw something the other day that someone said something about the Dutch to to someone that's Danish. And they're like, no, we are different. There is the Netherlands and there is Denmark, the Dutch and the Danish. <laughs> so it's the Dutch with the tulips and the windmills. You know what's really funny is like I can't even quite blame like a poor American education on my ignorance cuz do you remember growing up in school and having to like take those map tests where they give you a blank map and you have to write in like each country? This is going to sound terrible and I do I mean no offense by this. My least favorite one was Africa because there's so many tiny tiny countries. And I had to remember which tiny country was which tiny country. 
Oh, I feel like it's someone outside of America trying to figure out the states, especially once you get like west of the Mississippi, because we just kind of stopped giving a fuck when we were creating this country. We're like, here's a square. Here's a rectangle. Here's like a longer rectangle. Like those states are so difficult to decipher just by their shape. (laughs) I was to say, I saw a map yesterday that was, I don't remember what, it was someone from like Europe or something trying to fill in the United States. And I don't know if they were joking or not, but they basically circled the entire Midwest except for, except for Texas and wrote Texas. And the person commenting was like, you managed to circle everything but Texas and call it Texas. Oh my God. I mean, the, and the then whole like the whole the East Coast was like Texas. California or the whole West Coast. They just circled and was like California. Like, oh my god no. i mean are they wrong like i i can't right. even if you give me a blank map of the united states i will fuck up oh yeah Especially i could maybe do the to top like states. two rows of states and then like the bottom row of states and maybe the outer edges and then i'd get to the middle and be like i don't know <laughs> montana having- they're all montana <laughs> <laughs> no just kidding that's which in the top one is row north states. dakota <laughs> I could do, you remember do that. Having one. to learn the capitals. Yeah, I still probably couldn't. Some of them I know because they just stuck in my head, and other ones I could not. Like somebody asked me the other day, "What's the capital of Texas?" And I was like, "Dallas," and they're like, "No, it's not Dallas." I'm like, "Is oh. it Houston?" No, it's Austin. Or Austin. Damn it, it's Austin. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was like, okay. Texas is big. I forgot. My parents learned the state capitals better than I did when I was learning them because they were trying to That's quiz funny. me. And I remember they liked like being like, hey, Emily, what's the capital of Rhode Island? You don't know? Fucking Providence. Like throwing it in my face because I was That's in so fourth funny. grade and an idiot. <laughs> right. All right. We got way off track. Anyway. If any, like seriously, this is just us saying don't hold us accountable for the fact that we don't know geography. We don't even know yeah, our own damn basically. country. <laughs> so, uh, so Elias had been visiting Ranghild until he was in a biking accident, and then two years later, in 1906, he just died. It must oh, have been a pretty okay. rough biking accident. Like I don't know yeah, how old intense. he was or what the deal was, but that's a bummer. Ranghild's mother eventually passed away, so she moved in with one of her sisters, spending the last 10 years of her life in Hamar, which is where the school was located. She she was described as always smiling, good-humored, and generally just great to be around. Like, people liked her. She was a cool lady. And this is a complete 180 from the girl who scratched and bit strangers. Although I'm sure she could throw down if she had to. Like, you don't lose that Oh, yeah, I'm sure she still held on to that badass streak. Yeah. Someone, like, clears their throat because she's paying at the grocery store with pennies. And she's like, bitch, you want to throw down? Is this how you want to die today? On February 12th, 1947, after a bout with bronchitis, Ranghill died at 73 years old. Not bad. Like, 73 isn't bad, I feel, for that time. Legacy. So this is normally the part where I list all of the streets and buildings named after the woman I'm covering, but not this time. Because Ranghild isn't really well known outside of Norway, and she's mostly known for inspiring another better-known herstory hero, 
Helen Keller had also become deaf and blind from a childhood illness, per- perhaps also scarlet fever like Ronghild. When Ronghild's story reached the 10-year-old Helen Keller, it inspired her to inspired her and proved to her that she too could learn how to communicate. So I had mentioned that other educator had heard Ronghild's story and was like, whoa, Ronghild's the shit, and started spreading it around. Well, that story did reach Helen Keller. And so Ronghild is always mentioned as like being one of Helen Keller's inspirations. Good. More people need to know about her. you know her what? Then. Empowered women, empowered women, what? Fuck yeah. Yeah. So that is my really short story. Like, it was it was about two and a half pages. It didn't need to be two and a half pages. Like I it's okay, I mine'll cover the out. rest. Mine's like seven pages. Oh shit. All right. Well, I feel like my my woman is more known potentially, but I like I still hadn't heard of her, but like people that are super into computers might have maybe heard of her. Are we know. getting mad? Or really big into Lord Byron. You know? Are we getting slutty? No. Are we getting well, mathy and slutty? We're getting mathy. <laughs> I guess there's a little slutty in there. Just a little. Own it. <laughs> I always own the slutty. No. All right. So I'm covering um, Ada Lovelace. <gasps> okay. This is a big one. Yeah. Yeah. I know. That's why we, that's why when you were when I was like, yeah, I need a little bit more time. That's why <laughs> I was like, I need okay. to do this justice. Well, cuz Ada Lovelace, I wouldn't say she's well known, but as far as uh this push towards highlighting women from history, she's kind of one of the ones that has risen to the top where it's like every time someone writes an article about women you probably haven't heard of, she's on it. So she's, she's on there, especially when it's women STEM women. Yeah. Yeah. So she was born Augusta. Um, sorry, hold on. <laughs> my my brain just like. There we go. We're off to a great start. I know. We'll just cut that <laughs> part. It's fine. She was born Augusta Ada Byron. That that was her name, which I think Augusta is actually a really pretty name. She was the only legitimate child of poet Lord Byron and his wife Lady Byron. She was the only, he had other illegitimate children, but she was the only legitimate one. I was going to say, Lord Byron stuck his dick into anyone who moved. Right. He, he yeah, was, it was a thing. He was a little slut. And you know what? Not knocking on his uh, sexual appetites, but he, uh, he got around. Right. Lord Byron expected his child to be, quote, a glorious boy and was disappointed when Lady Byron gave birth to a girl. However, they named the child after his half-sister, Augusta Lay, and um, Byron actually called her Ada. Like, that's that's where she got the Ada part of her name was from Byron himself. Okay. However, in January of 1816, um, when Ada was just five weeks old, uh, Lord Byron commanded his wife to leave her parents' house to go to, like, a different castle and take their daughter with them. Like, he was like, I'm done with you. Go away. Oh, Byron. Why am I surprised? At the time, Eng- like- <laughs> English law, at the time, English law, it was customary for the men to take custody of children in a separation. Um, but Lord Byron made no attempt to do so, um, but did ask his sister to keep him afor- informed of Ada's life. 
Um, on April 21st, so just a few months later, Lord Byron signed um, what they called a deed of separation back then, which is uh, basically a divorce. Okay. So, you know. I, I feel like it, this is a good Apparently what it is, sucks. is it's a legal process by which a married couple may formalize a de facto separation while remaining legally married. That's what it says. So they so. still get the the benefits of being married, but they never actually have to see each other again. Yeah, basically. Okay. Although he seemed to be very reluctant to do so, he did end up leaving England for good um, just shortly after that. I don't really know why. I don't know Lord Byron's story very well. I didn't dive into it. Um, he was he running out of people to screw. Probably. He did commemorate the separation um, in a poem that begins with, quote, Is thy face like thy mother's, my fair child, Ada, sole daughter of my house and heart? Wait, was was that in the was that in the legal document, the separation document? No, he wrote a poem about the about parting. And that was the first line oh, of it. OK, I was like, man, I didn't know you could turn a legal document into poetry back then. What the hell? Right. No, that was a separate thing he wrote. So after he left, Lady Byron continued to make allegations about her husband's immoral behavior because, you know, he had a lot of immoral behavior. So why not? Yep. This kind of made Ada uh, Ada infamous in Victorian society because, you know, she kind of always had that stigma around her, even though she had no relationship with her father at all because he left, you know, when she was five months old, and then he actually ended up dying when she, in 1824 when she was only eight. And so she never knew her father, but she still always had that stigma of, oh, your dad was a slut. Damn, that sucks when, like, children have to pay for the sins of their parents or, like, pay for their parents' behavior. Right. And Like, he was a sperm donor. I mean, he wasn't a dad. Right, exactly. And her mom remained bitter, like, her whole life, and she was the one that kind of promoted slash forced um, Ada into math and logic in an, in an effort to prevent what she called um, Byron's perceived insanity. Like they kind of viewed him as crazy. And so they were like, to keep you from going crazy, we're going to make you learn all this math. Wow. I love that the solution to this is education. <laughs> I feel like that's not usually the way these go. An interesting side fact, um, Ada wasn't shown a family portrait that had her father in it until until her 20th birthday. Wow. Yeah. That's weird. Right. Like, so, why bother? I know. But I don't know. Maybe maybe her mom just never told her who her dad was until she got older. But right. I don't know. So although her mom was her only parental figure, they did not have a close relationship. In fact, she was left in the care of her grandmother, um, Judith Lady Milbank, quite often. Um, and she, But her grandmother doted on her a lot. So it wasn't like terrible, but still like her mom wasn't around. Although to society, Lady Byron had to present herself as this li lo loving mother. So she would write unsexy finger quote anxious letters to lady milbank about her daughter's welfare with a note saying hey keep these letters in case i have to use them to show maternal concern wow so she's just performative parenting yeah and in one letter she um the mom went so far to, and referred to ada as an it quote 
I talk Shut to it up. for your satis. Yeah, this is the quote from the letter. I talk to it for your satisfaction, not my own, and shall be very glad when you have it under your own. End quote. This is her mother. That's what her mother wrote to her, to her, her grandmother. Yeah. Is this where a child called it came from? Yeah, maybe. Like, what the hell? Right. As she grew older, um, Lady Byron had her teenage daughter watched by friends for any sign of moral deviation. Ada started calling these observers the Furies and later complained that they exaggerated and invented stories about her. That is amazing. Well, I guess it doesn't feel like they're doing their job if they keep just saying, yeah, she's a normal fucking person. Yeah. Right. Nope. She's fine. Yep. Nope. She's not like sleeping around or looking nutty. You know, just she's right. normal, which is really quite exactly. impressive because she has you for a mother. Yeah, exactly. So um, Ada was often ill as a child, actually, and she went through uh, various things, actually. Like at the age of eight, she experienced such severe headaches that they would obscure her vision. So probably some sort of migraine. Yeah. In 1829, she was paralyzed after a bout of the measles. What? Um, This was possibly made worse because they subjected her to continuous bed rest. So that probably like, you know made it worse because if you're subjected to bed rest you kind of lose muscle mass and you know so i'm sure coming out of that was hard although by 18 it took her until 1831 to be able to walk without crutches again or to be able to walk with crutches again oh my god so that's two years that it took her this feels like such a victorian childhood like oh it is (laughs) your mom sucks you're living with a grandma your dad's off fucking everyone you you're succumbing to childhood illness you got your little crutches throughout her illnesses though she was she continued her education partly because like i said her mother was obsessed with rooting out this insanity that she thought byron had um so she was she had many um private tutors including william friend william king and a woman named mary somerville we should probably cover at some point because she is a 19th century researcher and scientific author and she's actually pretty cool oh wow yeah so when she was 12 ada decided she wanted to fly because who doesn't want to fly um and so like a smart person she decided to go about this mathematically and methodically so her first step in 1828 was to construct a set of wings She went through and investigated different materials, different sizes. She watched how birds flew. She examined their anatomy to determine the right proportion between wings and body size. And she wrote a book called Flyology, illustrating her findings. So you mean she didn't just take an umbrella and try to jump out of a tree? No. She, like, went about this. She also decided that you would need a compass to cut across the country in the most direct road. And um, she also, she wanted to try and incorporate like steam into the art of flying. So like she had this whole thing. Of course, it didn't go anywhere. But I just thought that was really neat. I, okay, can we have a movie where Leda Lovelace actually did figure out how to fly, but her thing, her like documents and the secret to human flight were lost to the ages. And it's like, a, um, oh God, what was that one book? The Da Vinci Code? Right. Or like a it's national like treasure sort of thing. Yeah. Yes. That'd be sweet. <laughs> 
So Ada did go on in her teens to have an affair with one of her tutors in 1833. She tried to elope with him, um, but was caught when the tutor's relatives realized who she was and sent her back to her mother. How old was the tutor? Like, that sounds Um, gross. It didn't say. It didn't even say which tutor it was. Okay. Oh! Could it have been It wasn't Mary Mary Somerville. I know that because she comes back up. Um, Lady Byron and her friends in society covered up the incident to prevent, you know, more scandal than what her dad had already caused. It's all about appearances in Victoria, England. Right. Her next tutor, Mary Somerville, um, they actually became very, very close friends. And Mary Somerville introduced her to Charles Babbage, which we'll come back to later. He He was really important in computer development. So... Uh, her and Mary Somerville became very good friends and they had a lot of respect and affection for each other and they corresponded for many years even after um, they stopped. she stopped being the tutor um, and through her she met a bunch of other people like uh, Andrew Cross who's a scientist and even Charles Darwin Char- not Charles Darwin Charles Dickens the author oh okay so like Ada knew some really impressive people yeah um When she was 17, her mathematical abilities really began to emerge, and that became her dominant interest and would take over the majority of her adult life. In a letter letter to Lady Byron, de Morgan, who was another one of her tutors, suggested that her daughter's skill in mathematics could lead her to become, quote, an original mathematical investigator, perhaps a first-rate eminence. So, like, people were like, damn, she's smart. (laughs) damn she good at math (laughs) right words a young emily never heard (laughs) exactly um ada was known to value metaphysics and as much as mathematics and viewed both as tools for exploring the unseen worlds around us so that's kind of cool yeah Um, she was also presented to court at the age of 17 as was normal in victorian society she became very popular during the court season and in part because she was so smart um she was known to be dainty and able to charm a lot of people and would go on to you know dance she she quite enjoyed court she would go on to marry william eighth but eighth baron king and become uh and obtain the title lady king which is kind of a sweet title yeah lady king um, they had three children, Byron, obviously named for her father, Anna, Why? Isabella. Um, I think she kind of, I don't know, regretted not knowing her father and like didn't, she didn't blame, from what I read, she didn't blame a lot of his um, infidelity on him. She kind of blamed the women. Oh. It's, it was it was a thing. I don't know. I didn't get too deep into it because I was like, yeah, that's not important. Yep. She is not defined by um, her association to a famous man. Exactly. So, yeah, they had Byron, Anna Isabella, and Ralph Gordon. Those are their three kids. Um, after the birth of their second child, Annabella, um, Ada experienced a tedious and suffering illness, which took months to cure. They didn't say what it was, but I'm wondering if it was maybe some sort of like postpartum depression or, you know, something along those lines. That's kind of what I was thinking, because especially if they can't define it, and that can come with both emotional and physical symptoms. Right. So I'm sure um, they were just Ada like, was- this sucks. Exactly. They're know. just like, eh, it's some, she's sick. We don't know why. Do cocaine about it. 
right? Um, so Ada was actually a descendant of the extinct Baron's Lovelace line. And in 1838, they brought that back, basically. And her husband was made the Earl of Lovelace. And Ada became the Countess of Lovelace, hence her name, Ada Lovelace. So that's where it comes. I was like, where does Lovelace come from? Because that name almost sounds like too well crafted. You know? Right, exactly. Ada Lovelace. Like, that's something that you come up for your your screen name. Or like your RPG character or something. (laughs) Like, it's too pretty. It's too perfect. Right. So in 1843, Ada's mother, who is still around, um, assigned William Benjamin Carpenter to teach Ada's children and to act as a moral instructor for Ada. So the so the mom's still like, you're going to be morally deviant. You have your father's illness. So this guy's going to teach your children and keep you in line. However, uh, William fell in love with Ada and encouraged her to s- express any frustrated emotions claiming that his marriage meant he would never act on any anything toward her. However, when it became clear that William was trying to start an affair with her, Ada cut it off and was like, no. And she shut him down. Wow, good for her. Also, I like how weird is that? That first of all, he sees her and she and he's like, I'm loving all of this. And then he's like, I want you to, like, express your carnal emotions and just, like, really express yourself. And, like, as you were saying that, I was, like, hearing his voice saying, with your pussy, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, just, like, whatever feels right to you. If you want to strip in front of me, that's fine. No judgment. I I won't do anything, though, because, you know, I'm married. Right, exactly. He sounds like a prick. (laughs) He does. He really does. So I was so glad when I was like, oh, good, she shut him down. Um, so in the 1840s, uh, Ada did flirt with scandals. Um, she There were a lot of rumors floating around that she had extramarital relationships, um, mainly because she she had a really relaxed approach to like being friends with men and stuff. So I don't know if any of the rumors were substantiated or not, but there were a lot of rumors going around. Uh, the bigger one is that she was kind of a gambling addict. Oh, kind of a hardcore gambling addict. And she lost uh, a lot of money on horses. And it actually went on to her to lead like a syndicate of like male friends. And she tried to create this mathematical uh, like model for like placing bets and like getting good money in return. Uh, It didn't go well. And she was in serious debt to the syndicate that she formed. So she had to like admit it all to her husband and be oh, like, Oh, she was in debt to her own syndicate. Yeah. What she the hell? Ada, honey. And so she had to go to her husband and be like, yeah, so I have a gambling problem and I need money. Jeez. You know, I thought she would do better because she's a math genius. I'm imagining her like counting cards like in 21 or something. Yeah, that's kind of what I envisioned, too. But no, she has to go with horses. Right. We're going to backtrack a little because I kind of just covered her life. And then now I want to cover, like, her work that kind of intertwined. But it was really hard to, like, piece everything out from her work in chronological order. So I just kind of kept her work in one chunk because it was a lot easier. All right. So I mentioned Charles Babbage before. 
and he so he had invented something called a deference engine uh i don't really know what it is but it was kind of like a very simple computer that calculated numbers i think that's kind of how i understood it and so after meeting in 1833 babbage invited lovelace to come see this prototype that he made of this deference engine and she absolutely became fascinated with it and she used her relationship with her tutor somerville because that's who introduced them mary somerville to visit babbage as as much as possible like she's like i love what he's doing let me go and see him um and he became really impressed with her and her knowledge and her her analytical skills and he began calling her the enchantress of number enchantress of number yeah which i love she has the best names. She's Lady King, Countess Lovelace, and the Enchantress of Number. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, during a nine-month period from 1842 to 43, Ada began translating um, an Italian mathematician named Luigi Manbrea's article on Babbage's prototype. So, this guy wrote an article on Babbage's prototype. And so, Ada began translating it from Italian to English, I assume. Um, she also wrote a bunch of notes on it and explained the analytical engine's function because a lot of people didn't understand what it did because this was a completely new um, thing because originally he made the deference engine and now this was an analytical, uh, an analytical engine. And so she wrote a lot of notes on like, what the differences were and like try tried to put it in like simpler terms so people would like understand and support it because a lot of people didn't support it because they just didn't understand what it was. That's and these like notes and she wrote based Yeah. And these notes she wrote based on that article were about three times longer than the original article she was translating. Oh my God. Yeah. So they, she was very detailed. She wrote out like the method of calculating the sequence. Um, and she like apparently it actually never got built. It was like a pro like it was an idea and it never got built. The deference engine was built, though. Um, but yeah, so she like went on to like do this whole thing. And based on this work. She is uh, widely considered to be the first computer programmer because that's what she was basically doing is writing out a program for this analytical engine to run, which is essentially computer programming. Before there were even really computers or anything that anyone right? would like even consider a computer. Because like it sounds yeah, like the one thing the... was just a calculator, right? Like a really big calculator. Yeah. The defer. Okay, hold on. Let me just quick... Because I I should have put it in my notes, but I didn't actually put it in my notes what they were. Because I was like, I'll remember. <laughs> Bad Kelly. Mm, Bad Kelly. <laughs> yes, sure. So yeah, the so the deference engine, which was which is the one that was actually completed, is yeah an automatic mechanical calculator. Uh, it tabulated polynomial functions. Uh. So that's a thing. Oh yeah, polynomial functions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know those things. Isn't that isn't that uh, that weird pink and blue Pokemon that like from from Gen One? <laughs> Porygon. <laughs> yes, exactly. So the yeah. analytical engine 
was um was actually supposed to basically be a general purpose computer, but it was never actually made. But yeah, that's why she's considered the first like computer programmers because she was like, oh, this is what this computer could do. Like if we put this here and, you know, like she basically wrote out something this computer could do had it ever been built. Oh, my God. Imagine if it had been built. We would have had like the first computer in what, the 1800s? Uh, yeah. Wild. 1880s. Good grief. So they they named all of these notes that she wrote Note G. That's what I don't know. I don't know. That's what they just named them. Um, okay. It also contains this. So this note, besides this computer program that she basically wrote, contain contains a small chunk where Ada talks about the the dis the dismissal of artificial intelligence. She wrote that quote. The analytical engine has no pretensions whatever to originate anything. It can do whatever we know how to to order it to perform. It can follow analysis, but it has no power of anticipating any analytical relations or truths. Which at the time, that's totally true. Like this simple computer that she would have, they could have made, it would have been super simple. It, it wouldn't have been able to learn on its own. Right. But she's already thinking about one day things it that could. can. Oh, I know. I hate that. (laughs) Um, And a lot of people had a lot of problem with that. And and it became a lot a subject of debate. And like people rebuttaled it. um, And it it was like a whole different thing. Um, Ada and Babbage eventually had like a minor falling out when her papers were published because he tried to leave like his own statement and was like and his statement was kind of viewed as a joint declaration. And so like, it was this whole thing or no, her statement, her papers were viewed as a joint declaration. And so he was like, Hey, can you withdraw? Okay. No. Yeah. So he wrote to her saying, Hey, can you withdraw those papers? Because he like, didn't want to be associated. And she said, no. So she's writing about the thing that he's trying to make. And, her stuff is being lumped in with his stuff. And he's like, hey, this is my deal. If you could just like step out of my spotlight. And she's like, <laughs> no. Right. Because it like he yeah, he wrote his own thing and then didn't sign it. And then, yeah, like her. It was just oh, this whole thing. OK. Their friendship eventually did recover um, and they did continue to re- re- correspond. Um, so they, they both got over it. OK, good. Which is good. They, they got drunk on mimosas and worked out their issues. Oh, my God. As, no, as honey, everyone does. I'm sorry. I, sh- I should have signed myself. No, 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 baby. I shouldn't have, like, stepped out into your spotlight. Like, that was your baby. And I'm so sorry. Oh, my God. I love you. Oh, my God. I love you. Right. That's like how we get we, we recover from a fight. We just get drunk and cry. <laughs> exactly. So she did. She did realize beyond just the artificial intelligence a potential of a machine beyond just number crunching because like i said the deference machine was literally just a giant calculator and i'm sure that's what they thought the analytical engine would be too and she wrote in her note so her notes were actually labeled a through g like so she had a whole set of notes but g is the really big one that people like view now as her like magnum that's where the computer program was okay so she wrote this This is a longer quote, sorry. The analytical engine might act upon things besides numbers were object 
were objects found whose mutual fundamental relations could be expressed by those of an abstract science of operations and which would be susceptible to of adaptations to the action of the operating notation and mechanisms of the engine. Supposing, for instance, that the fundamental relationship of pitched sounds in the science of harmony and musical composition were susceptible of such expression and adaptions, the engine might compose elaborate and scientific pieces of music of any degree of complexity or extent. So she's like, she's like saying, hey, a compu- if, if we gave it the right calculations, a, con- a computer could produce music. And that's a thing. That's a yeah. thing now. Computers There's a like Japanese... Books. There's a Japanese um, songwriter that is literally just a computer. I can't think of her name, but like she, she's been on tour over the all over the world, and it's literally just a computer that writes music. Oh, are you thinking a uh, Hatsune Miku from yes. Vocaloid? See, th- that's that's like a a program though, where basically you can create your own music using the voices of these different like Vocaloids. But yeah, there is a virtual person that goes on tour like i think she performed on one of the the late night shows shows over in america yeah but it's a it's a computer program yeah well and computers like how insane do is write that? their own music they do create their own art and they do write their own books like they're independently creating art it's terrifying and in 1880 she's like oh yeah given the right stuff this computer could you know have long blue pigtails and sing exactly (laughs) exactly and this analysis that she came up with was a hundred years before the implications of modern computing were even realized what the fuck and here's the thing like that sounds so crazy that you can imagine that but this is the same person that as a child was i'm gonna learn to fly and like probably would have figured it out you know? Right, exactly. She probably, if anyone could have, it probably would have been her. I still think she did, but she's like, this is too much power for humanity to handle. And she's got her notes written in crayon, buried somewhere, and we need to national treasure that shit and find it. <laughs> right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give you one more long quote by somebody different. So this is a historian of computing and someone who specializes in Babbage and in specifically, his name is Doran Swade. And this is what he wrote. Ada saw something that Babbage in some sense failed to see. In Babbage's world, his engines were bound by number. What Lovelace saw, what Ada Byron saw, was that number could represent entities other than quantity. So once you had a machine for manipulating numbers, if those numbers represented other things, letters, musical notes, then the machine could manipulate symbols of which number was one instance according to rules it is this fundamental transition from a machine which is a number cruncher to a machine for manipulating symbols according to rules that is the fundamental transition for calculation to computation from general use computation and looking back from the present high ground of modern computing if we are looking looking and sifting history for that transition then that transition was made explicitly by ada in that 1843 paper fucking wild i also love that he said it he called her by her last name and then like corrected himself yes that he was like what lovelace saw and then he goes no what ada byron saw like i love that he did that 
Right. And that's something we try to do on the podcast, referring by the, to these women by their first names, because it just seems like a little more intimate and a little more, I don't know, personal. And their names are so often overshadowed, you know? Right. Exactly. And it's always the last name. And I hate that because the last name could refer to so many different people. Well, and it could be their husband's last name. And here's the thing. If you take exactly. on your husband's last name, there's totally nothing wrong with that. But like, what if you have a really famous husband? It's like, okay, well, which one are we talking about? Although... Right. And especially with a name like Byron, originally. Like, oh, God. Yeah. It, calling her by her first name or her countess title is probably more appropriate. Yeah. Although there was that one woman you covered whose name I'm blanking on. Uh, she and her husband were like... Oh, uh, the the goddess of glucose. Yeah. Yeah. She and her husband having the same last name was actually kind of awesome because when they wrote like papers or if people they wrote together to work, and it was great, like they could use the last name and be referring to the same person, which was accurate. Yeah, I loved that. So after her work with Babbage was done, Ada continued to work on other projects, obviously, because she just had that brain. Um, she actually tried to create a mathematical model for how the brain gives rise to thoughts and feelings. She called it a calculus for the nervous of the nervous system. Uh, she never really achieved that um, because I mean, that would be impossible thinking about how the brain, like knowing how the brain works now as much as we do. Right. Like, but creating a mathematical model for that would be nearly impossible. But she was thinking about it. Yeah. And people think that she kind of, thought about it because she was kind of interested in the brain because she had a weird preoccupation inherited from her mother about a potential madness that she might have. So, you know. Just drawing lines, you know, between two things that may or may not be related. Exactly. So there is, of course, as there always is, controversy about how much she contributed to Babbage's products, or, I mean, product, but process is what I was actually looking for. Oh, okay. Oh, there are some historians that say that she wasn't the first computer programmer. A lot of people are saying that she was just republishing Babbage Babbage's stuff from earlier. So what one person said all but one of the programs cited in her notes had been prepared by Babbage from three to seven years earlier. The exception was prepared by Babbage for her although she did detect a bug in it. Not only is there no evidence that Ada ever prepared a program for the analytical engine, but her correspondence with Babbage shows that she did not have the knowledge to do so, which is sad. I'm going to say Herstory headcanon, she totally knew how to do it. Yeah, Herstory headcanon, she did, and she learned how to fly. Boom, mic drop. Like, I'm okay maybe not calling her the first computer programmer because she was working with Babbage, so they might maybe share that title. Yeah, but I would definitely say that she's the first female computer programmer. I would say so, too, because then even to... So she wrote notes that were even longer than an article that was written about Babbage's stuff. So she was clearly yeah, she like delving into ridiculous it deeper, amount. unpacking it, better understanding it. So I, I have a hard time believing she was just like jotting notes down and sharing them blindly. Right. Yeah. No. And... Um, there's a, a historian named Stephen Wolfram who wrote a book called Idea Makers, and he actually defends Ada's contribution. He acknowledges that Babbage did write algorithms, 
but nothing nearly. This is what he wrote. Quote, there is nothing as sophisticated or as clean as Ada's computation of the Bernoulli numbers. Babbage certainly helped and commented on Ava's work, but she was the driving force. I so like he's basically Steven. saying, no, <laughs> she was the one to do it. Yeah, Babbage helped or, you know, like had the basics down. But yeah. So and he also says Babbage had a clear exposition of the abstract operation of the machine or no. Ada had a had a clear exposition of the abstract operation of the machine, which Babbage never did. Okay. So, I mean, yeah, like, they were definitely working together, at least on some kind of even footing. Ada may have been a little more dominant in her knowledge and understanding of this. But to, right. to completely discount her contributions or her participation, I feel, is irresponsible. Right. So, her story had canon... She was one of the first computer programmers, 100% first female programmer, and a fucking badass. Hell yeah. Uh, she did die at the age of 36. Oh, what? She died fairly young. Yeah. What the fuck? Even for then. <laughs> I know. I'm like, all this stuff. And she died. Uh, <laughs> Damn you. Um, so she d- divided, died at the age of 36 on November 27th in 1852 from uterine cancer, which was most likely exacerbated by the bloodletting her physicians were doing. You guys, if anyone from the past is listening, stop with the bloodletting. It's a bad time. (laughs) Right. The illness went on for several months, and she, um, her daughter Annabella, that's what they called her, um, took over um, command of who was allowed to see Ada and stuff like that. So, like, a lot of people... They, she cut off a lot of contact with a lot of people, probably because her mom wasn't doing very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ada went on to make it, uh, her daughter her executor of her estate. Uh, she did lose contact with her husband at some point because she, it doesn't say what she confessed, but she confessed something to him in August. So she died in November. She confessed something to him on the 30th of August, which caused him to abandon her bedside and she did not. he did not return. I think maybe some of those, but nobody about knows what she told him. Were real, probably. Um, she was buried at her request next to her father, Lord Byron, at the Church of Saint Mary Magdalene in Hucknall, Nottinghamshire. I so wonder if nice. You know, I kind of wonder. That seems like such an interesting relationship because he was never around. I wonder if she was allowed to have a more picturesque idea of him because she was left with her mother who was a clearly very hurt and uh damaged woman who was who was like uh putting all of her insecurities and worries and uh, onto her daughter and so it's like right man dad no wonder you left mom she's a crazy bitch and it's like yeah but why is she a crazy bitch maybe because her husband like fucked everyone who could move and left her with a daughter that he didn't want right so yeah weird man she yeah it was interesting (laughs) um so legacy because clearly she's gonna have one oh yeah um so there is a computer language named ada that the United States Department of Defense uh, made and named after Ada Lovelace. Aww. So that's cool. A little softies. That was in like 1980-ish. 
the Association for Women of Computing inaugurated um, the Ada Lovelace Award in 1981. And the British Computer Society followed in 1998 by, by giving out the Lovelace Medal. And in 2008, they started a competition for women students, um, like under her name, which is cool. I love that. Uh, there is an there is an Ada Lovelace Day, which is an annual event celebrated on the second Tuesday of October, which is uh, used to raise money for women in science, technology, and engineering and math. Which is I'm going to cool. have to put that on my calendar. Right. She has a few buildings named after her. I'm not going to get into all of them. Um, I'm trying to like read really quick all my notes and go over the important ones. Oh, oh, this is really cool. And I want to see pictures of this for anyone that has a British passport. Send me <laughs> pictures of this. Because as of November 2015, all British passports have an illustration of Lovelace on ba- and Babbage on pages 46 and 47. Oh, so seriously? Take pictures of your passport on page 46 and 47. I want to see this. See, I thought this was going to be a call to action to travel. And I was like, Kelly, no. <laughs> no, it's not. It's just I want to see your passports. Oh, that's um, so cool. In 2017, Ada Lovelace was the International Women's Day Google Doodle. Love it. Which is awesome. I think I remember that. Yeah. there In 2018, Satellogic, which is a high-resolution Earth observation imaging and analytics company, launched a new a new sat-type microsatellite, which I don't know what that is, but it sounds kind of neat, um, named in honor of Ada. Aww. March 2018, Ada was included in the New York Times uh, belated obituaries. Good. Sorry, last one. The Cardano platform uses ADA as the name of its cryptocurrency and Lovelace as the smallest subset of the ADA, which is cute. Oh, cute. So she has a, a, a cryptocurrency named after her. Which I is, just love that. I think the she ADA. would appreciate. It sounds so adorable. Right. Exactly. So, yeah, that I thought she was pretty, pretty sweet. Yeah. And she's someone I know that we've mentioned on the podcast before. Uh, but obviously never covered. And so I I knew like a very general overview of who she was in her story, but I'd never really gotten right. super into it. So I'm really glad that you covered her and shared this. Yes, I, I hope I did it justice. Absolutely. All right. So Kelly, what are you yes. thankful yes, for? Darling. Yes, my dear. What am I thankful for? That's a good question. No, I'm really thankful for, um, I'm going to do one I've done before, but like my husband and um, stuff like that, because he has been really encouraging on like me getting out and doing stuff. And like when we, we bought some bikes and he's been really good about like, let's bike every day or every other day. And like, he used to not like biking, so I'm. I was like, when he was like, "Let's get bikes," I was like, "Uh, I don't know," because I was like, "Are you really going to use yours?" Like, I know right. I'll use mine because I biked all the time as a child. But he's been like really, really good about being like, "Hey, let's go for a bike ride," you know. Like, and we we since we've bought them, we've only missed one day, and then the next day he was like, "Okay, we have to make sure we go for a bike ride today." 
Oh shit! And then we went for a five and a half mile bike ride, which was ridiculous. That is amazing. Good for you. Right? Like we're not doing like long bike rides because neither of us are used to it. Like we probably haven't biked in like three or four years. So like a lot of our bike rides are really short, especially if there's hills because hills are assholes. Um, But, you know, we're trying to do it every day and he's been really encouraging and he's been really good about like helping around the house. And I don't know, like a lot of people are complaining about their spouses. You know, I see people being like, oh, being home with my spouse and children is making me want to drink or just, oh, I want to get away from my spouse. And honestly, like. I'm not trying to like be showy but like I feel like being home together is either hasn't damaged our relationship at all or has made it like better like and I don't know so I just he's been really great especially this past week and dealing you know and me getting the official notice that I'll be furloughed for two months and you know all this stuff and he's just been like my rock so it's it's I'm gonna thank him that's really sweet how about you? What are you thankful for? Um, so I'm going to be thankful for something a little silly. So uh, a few of my girlfriends put together a group like Facebook chat and uh, we're planning actually a happy hour tonight, like a like a video chat happy hour, which is something I've never done before. Like I'm not a big video chat person because I hate talking on the phone as it is. Um, but we've been chatting in the group chat and just like. And normally I hate group chats because right. one person will say something and then it's like, oh, hey, guys, here's a piece of information that no one actually needs to respond to. And then 80 other people and then are everyone like, responds. cool, cool, okay, cool, okay, see you there. I'm like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> but this has been right. really fun and uh, just I'm feeling more connected with that group of friends because obviously I haven't been able to see them in a while. And uh we we were coming up with like dumb nicknames for each of us in our group chat. Like my one friend is Trashy Bottom, and yeah, uh, say you can nickname people in groups. It's great. Yeah, and mine is uh, oh, I came up with it. Let me let me see if I can remember it. Oh yeah, uh, mine is too hot to twat. <laughs> <laughs> like just really really dumb shit and so that's just been really fun and i'm really thankful for that also i found a lost dog this week well jared did but i helped uh this sweet adorable little dog was just wandering around the neighborhood and we were able to find her home but i was really thankful we were able to find her home but i made the decision way too quickly that yep i can handle a third (laughs) dog this is fine (laughs) right I will say you're going to be mad at me because I just realized my headphones were doing nothing because I had plugged them into my computer thinking I was going to talk to you through my computer, but I used my phone. So you're going to be in the background of my recording. Oh, no. I love you. I'm going to have to mute so much. That's okay because I love you and I love doing this podcast with you and I'm thankful that we get to keep doing it even under quarantine. Right. I'm glad we found... I'm glad that technology is to a point that we can. Oh, absolutely. Thank you, Ada. (laughs) Woo. Yeah, there you go. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whiny About Herstory. Like us on Facebook, Whiny About Herstory. Instagram, W-A-H pod. 
Twitter at WAH underscore pod. We have a fa- uh, blah, blah. <laughs> we have a website, whiningaboutherstory.com, and our email is whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you and your, you know, your shout outs, your herstory heroes, really anything. We actually got a really nice email from one of our listeners uh, recommending an episode of a podcast that covers uh, a really cool woman from history. And I started listening to it and I'm already loving it. And uh, we'll probably be covering her in the future. Also, please rate us five stars wherever you listen. Uh, we've actually gotten some really lovely five-star reviews from you guys. And written reviews are always preferred because we want to hear your beautiful, wonderful words. And we love you. Also, we have. And a if Patreon. you want to support the show, <laughs> if you want to support the show, or you know, go- donate toward getting us wine, we have a Patreon. You can donate for as little as one dollar. We're going to be dropping some. What are you calling them, Emily? Juice box episodes. Yes, we haven't come up with a better name yet. But juice box episodes, where you know, we'll tell. It's just going to be one of us telling a story about a woman we've already covered but in a more child-friendly and appropriate manner. Yep. So the first episode is going to come out in May, and we are covering Sarah Biffin, or we're revisiting her. And yep. If you and then after that, the next one will be Sybil Luddington. I'm super excited. And then who knows where we'll go from there. Yeah. And here's the thing. If you are a patron, we'll let you vote on who we cover next. Yeah. We'll do some polls. You guys are in control. You run our lives. Yes, you do. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Bye. Bye.